Hello, thank you for listening to Fact or Fiction, a mostly true crime history podcast. Please be aware that in each episode, one fictional detail has been inserted. At the end, all will be revealed. Now, on with the show. Mrs. Frances Connors left her little room in an east side tenement house early on the morning of April 12, 1903. She was going to the bakery for rolls for breakfast. As she passed in front of the New York Mallet Works, she noticed a barrel standing near the curb. An overcoat was thrown over the head of the barrel. It was a decent-looking coat, not one to be thrown away. She paused in her walking and regarded the barrel. Mrs. Connor stepped to it, lifted a corner of the garment, and peered in. A cry of terror broke from her lips, for jammed inside the barrel was the body of a lifeless man. Mrs. Connor's startling discovery of the body in the barrel helped Detective William J. Flynn expose a dangerous group of organized criminals. America in the early 20th century was rife with threats. Organized crime groups like the Mafia, German spies embedded behind enemy lines ahead of World War I, package bombs sent throughout the country, and the 1920 Wall Street bombing all dominated headlines. Long before Elliot Ness and the Untouchables went after Al Capone and the Italian mob, Detective William J. Flynn dismantled the first Mafia family to exist in America. But he didn't stop there. Coined the bulldog for his tenacity, Flynn's fame soared as he exposed a sophisticated international spy ring on the cusp of America's entry into World War I. During his storied career, Flynn collaborated with the New York Police Department and successfully reorganized its detective force in 1911. He spent much of his career with the Secret Service. He also served as the director of the U.S. Bureau of Investigation, the precursor to today's FBI. He also contributed to screenplays in the early days of the motion picture industry. Hi there, Factor Fiction fans. I'm your host, Laura, and I'm back with the Factor Fiction author series. Today's guest is author Jeffrey D. Simon. Simon is the author of several books about terrorism and is a former RAND analyst who also taught at UCLA. His writings have appeared in many publications, including the Journal of the American Medical Association, Foreign Policy, and the New York Times. He's also been interviewed by several media outlets, including CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, CBS Sunday Morning, NPR, New York Times, Washington Post, and Los Angeles Times. As a guest on Factor Fiction, Jeff has agreed to share some of the highlights from his most recent book, The Bulldog Detective, William J. Flynn and America's First War Against the Mafia, Spies, and Terrorists. Flynn's career provides a fascinating glimpse into early 20th century crimes and detective methods, and his character is one of the most interesting of the era. Of course, since you're listening to Factor Fiction, Jeff will infuse Flynn's actual story with one fictional detail. Well, I guess the fiction? Will you? Listen carefully because it is tricky to know if what you hear is fact or fiction. Ready to play? Hello, Jeff. Welcome to Factor Fiction. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning more about Flynn um, and about you and your backstory and, and then more about the book, too. It sounds fascinating. Um, so, so before we talk about the book, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? I know you hold a PhD in political science. 
from the University of Southern California. And most of your work involves political an analysis, um, specifically focused on terrorism and political views. So, so what drew your interest to this specific area of political science in the first place? I was always interested in current affairs, also in history. I was a history major as an undergraduate. And for graduate school, I focused on political science. So it sort of combined the two and looking at international conflict, international violence, and political science seemed to be sort of the uh, venue, the way I was think I'd have a career. And I was doing research in those areas. So somehow you just gravitate and you have to declare a major, you know, when you're in, in, in college. <laughs> and um, so I, I kind of see myself now both as political scientist, historian, terrorism analyst, and uh, I love writing books. Yeah. Well, and, and um, I have to pause here a second. I hear a New York accent. How'd you end up in, in California? Well, that's good. It actually is an interesting story. I grew up on a street in Brooklyn that was right around the corner from Brooklyn College, where almost everybody from my high school went. My high school was right across the street from Brooklyn College. And my elementary school, PS 152, New York, you don't have names, you just have public school number, mm -hmm. was right across the street from the high school. So I figured I don't want to walk the same route to college as I did my whole life. And it so happened my sister at that time was married and her husband was teaching out in Berkeley. Now, this is the late 1960s. So they said, why don't you think about coming to Berkeley? I said, what, Berkeley? You mean long hair, hippies? Uh, what am I going to do there? And they said, it's a great school. And they were right. And I just loved it. <laughs> and so I went there. That got me to California. And then I went for my master's to Indiana for two oh. years. And then from Indiana, I finished up my PhD at USC, you know, here in Los Angeles. Interesting story. So, yeah. So Indiana, what, how did that happen? Did you just, is that a really good school for <laughs> political science or? <laughs> That is funny because I haven't thought about that in so long. The reason I wound up there was that I thought, you know, maybe for a career, I should pick something that not everybody's going into so I can get a job and I could be an expert. <laughs> so I went there thinking I was going to specialize, you ready, in Albania, <laughs> that I was going to be an expert on Albania. So I had taken some uh, courses in East European studies. And Indiana had a great program on East European uh, you know, research and analysis. So I went there with that idea, but I quickly changed direction. And so from Albania, went more into American foreign policy and then, you know, into this more mainstream of the political science. Sure. And this is during the Cold War, too. So I would think that your, your interest was really in high demand. Um, oh, yeah. You know, your skills yeah. in that area. Yeah, totally. But then I figured you know, Albania, not many people knew about, you know, wouldn't even focus on it. So. No. Uh, yeah, that's pretty so, obscure. It, it is, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so for a while, I stayed with that, but then I went into the other fields. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so you're, you were thinking about, like, the best uh, career path. I'm guessing you encountered Flynn in your, in your history studies. And when did you first no. hear about him? Or Yeah, I what? heard about him a number of years ago when I wrote an article uh, for a terrorism journal. And the article was about a group that I had actually wrote a book about a couple of years ago called the Gallianists. They were militant Italian anarchists during the early 1900s. And Flynn was instrumental in going after them. So in my article and the book about the Gallianists, I had a little bit about Flynn, and I kept it in the back of my mind, God, this is an interesting guy. 
maybe I should write a book about him. But now any of your authors who are listening in will know one of the major problems you have when you're deciding on a book is one, has it been done before? Has it been done before? Yeah, did it get great reviews? Because what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to write it differently? So I look up, you know, through internet and research. And I find, hey, there's been no biography of this man. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Problem number two is, are you going to have enough information to write 80 to 100,000 words? And so through the magic of the internet, I tracked down Flynn's grandson, who was more than thrilled to hear somebody wants to write a book about, he always called him grandfather. <laughs> he never wrote to me, grandfather Willie, grandfather Bill. It was grandfather. And uh, he gave me great anecdotes, great photos. And I still was wondering, is there going to be other information? And it turned out Flynn was a prolific writer. He wrote a lot of articles. He wrote a lot of stories that appeared in newspapers. He wrote a book and he was always quoted in the news and everything. So there was a lot of primary information about Flynn, plus secondary information also. So then I figured, okay, I got it. And then I got the archivist. Hey, but I always get that wrong. Archivist or archivist? Archivist, correct. I think it's archivist. It's yeah. archivist, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's archive, it's archives. They are but archives, but yeah. <laughs> it's not archivist, the, ar- the archivist. And it was during COVID. And so I wrote to the archivist saying, you know, can I come to the Secret Service, you know, archives and do some research? I said, well, yeah, we're closed. But he was really helpful and sent me lots of information and documents. And that gave me more primary information. And there were just so many people helpful with data and things like that. And then I had to put the story together. And that's when I discovered there was so much more to Flynn than just his going after the terrorists, which is important in 1919-20. But he had so many other aspects to the career. I figured this is going to be, this could be a real fascinating story. So, you know, I never got bored writing it or researching it. No, it sounds like you definitely have more information than you needed for that 80,000 words. Um, Oh, yeah. So enough for two books, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I did not read your book. I don't know much about Flynn, which is part of the whole factor fiction thing, which makes it really hard. And I'm going to sound totally stupid a lot of times. And you can just correct me. That's kind of how it goes. But I did read on Wikipedia, um, which is not always the best sorts of information. But right. I read <laughs> on Wikipedia that Flynn started his career as a plumber. Now, is that actually true? Well, this is fact or fiction, right? You shouldn't be yes. asking me that. No, but that, that's not one of the aspects I'm going to add on the poor question. Okay, okay. Yeah. So that he yeah, was no, a that's true. Well, here's the thing about Flynn. Flynn had to quit school when he was 15 years old. His father died. And he starts getting odd, you know, all kind of jobs to, you know, help the family. Uh, he was a tinsmith. He actually was a semi-professional baseball player. And when you look at him and the cover of my book, he's a 300-pound man. Yeah. You know, I love the cover because you see this big man, you know, walking. Mm-hmm. And he also was a plumber, but he had a successful plumbing business. He was making money as a plumber. He was in New York, uh, lots of customers. And, and he has a quote where I could have made a good living staying as a plumber, but he always wanted to be a Secret Service agent since a little boy. And that was his dream. And so in his mid 20s, which already is getting older, he applies for a position, entry level, whatever. And they tell him, well, look, you got to get experience. Now, many of your listeners may not know this. The Secret Service, when they were formed in 1865, it wasn't for presidential protection. Protecting the president didn't come until 1901. 
after the McKinley assassination. So before that, their main job was counterfeiting during the Civil War. And afterwards, about a third of the country's currency was counterfeit. So it was a real problem. Mm -hmm. So Flynn is told, you got to learn about counterfeiters, learn their tricks of the trade. And the best way to do that is get a job in Ludlow Street Jail. This was a jail in New York City that held some debtors and held some uh, you know, nonviolent kind of criminals. It also held people on trial or about to go on trial for counterfeiting. It was like the way station before they were going to go on trial and then send if they convicted to a federal prison. So Flynn gets a job as a keeper, which is sort of like a warden. You know, it's below the title of warden. Sure. He's a keeper at the jail. And he befriends a number of the counterfeiters. One was this man named Willie, William Brockaway, who was like in his 70s or so. He was the oldest counterfeiter in the country, but he had a great career counterfeiting, took a liking to Flynn, told him, you know, all stories, all tricks of the trade. So Flynn stayed there two years, then went back to the Secret Service and they said, okay, yeah, you've done your duty. You know your stuff now. Here's your entry-level job as an agent in the New York office. And then he just has a you know, stellar career where he gets promoted to head of the New York office. And that is in 1901. And that's sort of the first part now of the story because he's head of the New York office from 1901 to 1910. And that's the period where he's dealing with counterfeiting, but he's also going after this mafia group. It's really the first mafia family in New York and almost probably could be considered the first mafia family in America called the Morello Lupo Gang. Giuseppe Morello, the clutch hand, you know, all these mafiosos have to have a nickname. Yeah. So it's Morello, the clutch hand, and Lupo the wolf. And these two are running this Morello Lupo family, which deals with extortion, murder, and counterfeiting. Now, that story you read at the beginning okay. is the barrel murder mystery. Mm -hmm. In 1903, as you said, this barrel is there in the middle of New York. And a body is sticking out and the head was almost cut off. Oh, my. And, and it's almost like terrorism where terrorists, to announce themselves or to show, you know, we're strong, we're tough and everything, have to do something different than other terrorists before. Because people get desensitized to the same type of bombings, in this case, murders, the same kind of murders. So terrorists will either kill more people or, as you see with 9-11, do horrific attacks, suicide attacks from the ear. So there's always something to drive terrorists to stand apart from the normal flow of terrorism. So the same thing with murder. So in this case, they decided we'll put this body in the barrel and uh, you know, people will know, don't mess with the Morello Lupa gang. The reason they killed the guy was they believed that one of his relatives had cooperated with Flynn and they wanted to kill the person who cooperated. The person who cooperated, though, was sent to prison. So they got the closest blood relative, which was the brother-in-law. So mm. that was how they killed him. And now, so his body becomes, you know, the murder, barrel murder mystery becomes a big event and becomes a big story around the whole country. They're kind of interested in this story. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with putting Morello and Lupo away was that they had to get somebody to talk about them, you know, to give evidence. They never had enough evidence to pin anything on Morello and Lupo. You know, nothing really stood up in court. They needed an informant either inside the gang or somebody who was kind of disaffected from the gang and would talk. But everyone was afraid, you know, all the members of the family to ever talk 
again, Morello and Lupo. So they I, I were, can imagine they, why they're afraid because is this this is after the barrel? Yeah, yeah. So after the bed, they know they they know they kill. Yeah, they, these yeah, are or killers. their family too, which is probably yeah. even scarier. Yeah, and what happened is that they also, in terms of extortion, they use what was called black hand letters. Now, yeah, yeah what are those? Yeah, you would send a letter with a black hand, uh, either holding a dagger or holding a, a knife or just an open black hand. And basically saying, pay or die. If you don't pay us this money, we're going to blow up your business. They preyed on wealthy Italian immigrants in Little Italy. And if they didn't pay, they did blow up their business. They, they killed them or they kidnapped their children. So wait, now, can I stop you real quick? What, oh, what sure. time period are we? Is it 1903? Oh, wait, this, yeah, this is 1903. Oh, the letters were going on probably from 1901 you know, to 1910 and even afterwards. You know, So this was the one of the ways the Morello Lupo gang would try to extort money from the Italians and other criminals see the success in that. And they would also pretend that we're part of a society. So, you know, you give us the money or, you know, we're going to kill you. Now, after the Barrow murder mystery, I mean, after the Barrow murder, Flynn's realm of work really was counterfeiting. So he's not really tasked to go after murderers. That's not his job. He knew they did it because he had them under surveillance for counterfeiting the night before the murder. So he knew there was some new person hanging out with them and that new person was the one who was dead. So they knew that they had killed him in a restaurant. Lupo owned the restaurant and Morello worked there. So in addition to Flynn, there was this real brave New York police detective called Joseph Petrosino. And he also wanted to go after the Morello Lupo gang. And so he tried also to get evidence against them, but neither Flynn or Petrosino was able to do so. Now, Flynn kept surveillance on Morello Lupo for like 10 years. Now, it wasn't 24-7, but he always had his men following them, trying to find out what's going on. And Flynn called what he did. He said, this is steady hammering. This is how he got the nickname Bulldog. He was tenacious. He never stopped. He said, once a case starts, if it's not solved, I keep at it until I solve it or the culprits are dead. So he just was not going to ever give up on a case. Now, Petrosino was an Italian police detective in the predominantly Irish-dominated NYPD. So he at first faced discrimination within the department and discrimination from his own people in Little Italy because they didn't trust the police and they didn't like that here's somebody working with the police. But he won everyone over eventually and was really well-liked. But he was so tough and so strong that he agreed to the secret mission in 1910 to go over to Sicily to not just only gain evidence maybe of other things Morello Lupo you know, may have been doing in the U.S. that was known in Italy, but more so to get the names of all Italian criminals who had emigrated to the U.S. in the last couple of years. Because under a certain law, if you, you had a criminal record, you could be deported if you hadn't been in the U.S. for more than a few years. Oh. So they wanted that to deport any Italian other mafia in the U.S. Also, to get the names of all Italian criminals and their pictures so that if they tried to come over to the U.S. at Ellis Island, immigration would prevent them from coming because they're criminal record. And third was to establish an intelligence network in Sicily get some trusted people who can then feed information to the NYPD. Now, the secret mission was really not so secret. Um, the 
I believe it either was the mayor at the time of New York or it could have been the NYPD commissioner inadvertently leaked it to the newspaper when they were saying, where's Petrosino? They said, oh, I don't know. Maybe he's in Europe. Oh, no. The Morello Lupo gang got wind from their own informants that he was in Sicily and they arranged to kill him. So he was lured out of a restaurant and he was killed. And this was huge news in the country because a New York police detective now is murdered. Oh, no. He got the biggest funeral, you know, NYPD history. So Flynn is you know, really upset about this and more determined than ever to get these guys, but still didn't have the evidence. Turns out a few months later, counterfeit $2 and $5 bills are showing up all over the eastern seaboard. And Flynn figures this looks like the work of the Morello Lupo gang. They were major counterfeiters. That's where they were also making a lot of money. So Flynn raised the plant, but they're not there. But then he decides enough's enough. Let's arrest this whole group and see what happens. You know, hopefully it'll hold up in court. So they got them arrested. One of the people arrested was a man named Kumito. His moniker was Kumito the Sheep, which isn't really good. It's not very flattering. No, because he was a timid, he was a timid man, but a very honest man who got kind of forced into working with the Morello Lupo gang. He got tricked into doing some work for them, not knowing it was illegal. And then they said, hey, if you leave us, we're killing you. We're going to kill your wife. So he had no choice. And Flynn has sympathy for him. So he said, you know, look, you cooperate with us. Uh, you know, there won't be any charges against you. But Flynn knew this could be really tough. I mean, is Camino going to stand up in court? Because the Morello Lupo gang, they'll just, you know, do things. They'll make signatures, you know, uh, of course, their neck, like we're going to kill you. So it could really intimidate. Witnesses. And also this, I'm assuming this is before witness protection. So there's no oh, way. Yeah, there's no way. To, no. Yeah. No, so yeah, <laughs> no not at all. <laughs> and not only that, they, they would kill him outside, you know, oh. had a security around the courtroom and everything. But Camito turned out to be like Camito the lion. He was perfect. He had a great memory. He was articulate. Everything came across. Uh, he was praised in the newspaper's testimony. And so Morello and Lupo were convicted. And they were sentenced to long prison terms, like 25 to 30 years for counterfeiting, which was like unheard of. But the judge, I believe, really sentenced them also because he knew they were involved in all this other activity. Now, when Morello was sentenced, he turned around to Flynn, who was Flynn was in the courtroom, and he made that slash across his throat, you know, glaring at him like, yeah, I'm going to be killing you. And uh, then yeah, he went off to prison. So Flynn, because they knew that Flynn was instrumental, the Secret Service, in getting these convictions, now sort of became a media star. He, he was admired everywhere in New York and around the country. And, you know, he was, he was on top. And at that point, the NYPD was facing corruption problems and all that. So they asked him, uh, the uh, mayor of New York, would you like to be a deputy commissioner of the NYPD? And Flynn was always ready for challenges, so he left the Secret Service, and this was only for a short period, became an NYPD deputy commissioner. No, and I just have a question. So I know Teddy Roosevelt was involved with the NYPD. Is this the same era? Is this Afterwards. So okay. Roosevelt came before. Okay. And yeah, Roosevelt was the same problem. Roosevelt was so well known and was also a media star himself. He tried to deal with the corruption even before Flynn when he was with the NYPD. Okay. So now, now Flynn is trying to reform the NYPD. He 
takes detective bureaus out of the precincts in terms of answering to the precinct captain just to answer to Flynn personally. He didn't trust some of the leaks that were going on. And you know, Flynn, one of his jobs was to raid gambling houses. Now, he wasn't so happy with doing that, but that was what he had to do. And he did a great job doing that. So one day he tells his detectives, he never told them before which house we're going to raid. He didn't want anything to leak out. He said to 13 of his toughest, you know, toughest looking guys, meet me at the 50th Street uh, subway station. I'll tell you then where we're going. He drives up there and they see him get out of his car. He opens the trunk and he gives each of them axes and crowbars. And he says, okay, guys, the gambling house is three or four blocks down the street. So we have 12 or 13 tough looking guys walking down the streets of New York with crowbars and axes. And they're in uniforms. They're just, you know, in street clothes. And <laughs> imagine the sight. People think, are these thugs? Who, who, who are these guys? And, you know, so they smash gambling houses. Flynn just was very well liked. Oh, he's always liked by all the people who were under him. But there was, again, too much politics going on. Flynn was not a political, you know, maverick. He, he didn't like all those games going on. And that's one of the reasons he was incorruptible. You know, he didn't, mm -hmm. he wasn't into money. He was into serving the country, serving the government. So uh, he just at a point, he said, like, enough is enough. And he called us sort of a thankless job. And Teddy Roosevelt, years later, said being commissioner of the NYPD is harder than being president. Yeah. So it's a real, it's a tough Thankless job. job. Yeah. Thankless wow. job. Yeah. So, wow. so Flynn leaves that and he goes back to the um, Secret Service. And at that point, we're about now in 1911, 1912, he then gets an offer to become chief of the Secret Service. They call him directors now, but then it's chief. So he's getting to get promoted to chief of the Secret Service. And there's another anecdote about that. Okay, let's hear it. All right. So <laughs> imagine now, you know, Chief of the Secret Service is a big, big position and it's an honorable position. And, you know, Flynn is, and I grew up in New York, so I understand the mindset. He's a true New Yorker. You know, uh, I got out of the New York head years later when I was living in California and got to love other areas. But Flynn just loved New York. He didn't want to leave. So what does he say to the Treasury Secretary about the job? He says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll take it. But only if you move the Secret Service headquarters to New York. And they say, well, we can't do that. You know, one of our functions now protecting president, you want us to move the headquarters to New York? You know, it'd be like a <laughs> laughing stock. He said, oh, come on. They said, no, we'll make a compromise. You can stay in New York, make travels to D.C., you get a lower salary because of that. Come out of your, you know, salary and you pay expenses. And and he did that, you know. And so he becomes chief with staying in New York, but also traveling to D.C. a lot. Yeah, kind of a, one of the one of the early remote hybrid jobs, I guess. Oh, totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah, probably. You know, could have worked via Zoom. You know, we had Virtually, Zoom. Virtually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, and this now starts another uh, major part of his career. So again, it's going into counterfeiters, protecting presidents. World War I breaks out in 1914. We, the U.S., do not enter the war until 1917. Germany wants to kind of influence U.S. public opinion to be not against Germany and not to be pro-British and also 
to you know learn what's going on in America, just to get information, also in case they ever if they go to war with the U.S. So they bring to the U.S. some top-level German officials to set up a whole spy and sabotage network, with the center being in New York, because New York was sort of the center then for foreign intrigue. It really wasn't Washington, D.C., it was New York. So a whole network is set up where they're going to be trying to sabotage ships that were sailing for Britain, create strikes at the docks, pay off the workers there to go on strikes. It was a elaborate, elaborate operation. And Dr. Heinrich Albert, the commercial attache for uh, the German embassy, was in charge of it. He had a $27 million budget. And the ambassador also was involved in uh, all this uh, intrigue. And so was the military attache. The U.S. didn't really know about it. You know, we, don't, we don't know what they're up to. You know, we find out about this because of an am amazing episode that Flynn is involved with. So things are going on. Wilson is saying, okay, look, we got to get evidence about what really are the Germans up to. So now it's 1915. So he says to the Treasury Secretary, all right, go to the Secret Service, get them to find out what's happening, okay? You got your top guys there. Find out what the Germans are up to. I want evidence uh, of whatever kind of, if they're involved in propaganda, if they're involved in the sabotage we suspect them of, we just don't have proof yet. So Flynn sets up an 11-man counter-espionage unit and puts his main aide, his main top guy, Frank Burke, in charge of it. So this unit is watching, surveying all the uh, German suspects that they have, uh, watching what they're doing. And one day, Burke gets a call saying, hey, come over here. One guy, an American who's a propagandist for the Germans, he's a, he owns a newspaper, is going into this building and we think he, he, he may be coming out with documents or something. Let, let's watch him. So Burke joins one of his people, and they watch the propagandists come out of the building with another individual they don't recognize. This individual is very well-dressed, carrying a briefcase. And they figure, this must be a high-level person. What in the world could be in that briefcase? God, we'd like to know. So they follow and it turns out it's Albert. Dr. Albert is the individual carrying the briefcase. They don't know that yet. They don't know who this person is yet. Uh, Burke eventually figures it out as he's surveying him, figuring, yeah, we heard there was some top diplomat involved in things. Maybe that's him. They follow the, the German and the American propagandists onto the L subway station. It's an elevated uh, train station where the train's going up town to uh, Midtown, New York, Manhattan, even further up. And they sit, you know, in the same car, trying not to be noticed. And when the propagandist leaves at the 23rd Street station, one of Burke's men follows him. And Burke now is alone in the car. There are other people there, but he's the only Secret Service agent there, eyeballing the diplomat, eyeballing Dr. Albert and the briefcase. And he sees Albert reading and reading a book. And then it comes to 50th Street. The doors open. And Albert suddenly yells out, wait, wait, don't close the door. He's panicking. He's going to miss a stop. So he runs out, leaving his briefcase. No. Use the briefcase. And, and the lady sitting there yells, uh, you've got your briefcase. And uh, uh, Burke says, 
no, 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 it's really mine. And Bert takes it and he runs out. And now uh, Albert is trying to get back into the station, into the car, thinking the briefcase is still there. He can't get in and he's being blocked, but people are, you know, all running in and out. Mm -hmm. And now what's, what's Bert going to do? Because he's on the platform. He doesn't want Albert to see him because then he may, they begin to fight. He may take the briefcase back and, you know, it, it would be a hassle. So Burke goes down into the street, thinking he got away from Albert. But Albert runs in the street and sees Burke with the, with the briefcase. He recognizes the briefcase. He starts giving chase to Burke. So we have this German agent running after a Secret Service agent, again, in the streets of New York. So Burke runs as fast as he can, and he gets onto a streetcar. And he tells the streetcar, it's like a trolley car, and hey, keep keep going. You see that crazy guy running down the street? And Albert was waving his hand, screaming, stop, stop, <laughs> stop. He said, that guy caused a commotion on uh, the train. He'll cause commotion here. Don't let him on. Keep going. So the conductor says, right. And they keep going. Eventually, Bert leaves the streetcar, calls Flynn, says, hey, I got something. Come over here, boss. So Flynn drives over, meets with uh, Bert. They open the briefcase and they see all these documents and they see this material. And it's in German, so they know we've got to get it translated. But they can tell this could be really something. And when it's translated, it shows that Albert was in charge of some $27 million to distribute for propaganda, for sabotage, even talking about it at some point, an invasion of New York where we'll blockade New York. It was all these plans and other things that they were doing. So now the Secret Service has a little bit of a problem because they can't announce that they took it because that could cause a diplomatic furor. You know, sure. it's like, no matter what, you just don't take other. And, and if he's a credited diplomat, how dare you steal his suitcase, uh, his briefcase, right? Well, and, and I assume there's still a faction in, in Washington that does not want to join the war, right? Oh, absolutely. So More than a faction. Doing... Oh, oh, yeah, a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. And then that, that this may push us into war. Good point. Right. So. What the Secret Service does is they go to a trusted newspaper, the New York World, and they give all the material to them and say, look, print this. We want to raise awareness of what's going on. We want the public to be also eyes and ears. We want to expose this network. So print it, but do not attribute it to us. So the New York, New York World prints all the material for three days, great circulation, great story, and it leads to the expulsion of a number of the diplomats. It doesn't lead to the expulsion of Dr. Albert. What happens is this now, um, and years later, Flynn admitted, yeah, we took it. We took the, uh, we took the uh, briefcase and Burke took the briefcase. So this really is a feather, again, in, in Flynn's cap because sure. it's the Secret Service eventually becomes known, helped expose the Germans. Flynn is now even more of a media star. Movies are made about him. He writes a book called The Eagle's Eye, you know, telling how he was able to expose Germans. And in the movie with serials that were made, uh, uh, a number of these short movies that were popular in the theaters. And so Flynn, written about all the time in the paper, and now is at, at the top of his game. And this is about 1917. Now, what happens then is Flynn leaves the Secret Service, and he becomes head of uh, a unit called the Police and Secret Service of the Railroads. And it's a huge uh, job. There's, they have lots of police to look at, um, not so much sabotage, but thefts. Who's stealing cargo from the trains? 
mm-hmm. really wasn't the job, you know, Flynn is that happy with, but he, he has that for about a year. And then he's sort of waiting for the next call because he's always in demand. In, ni- yeah, in the 1919, he's asked by A. Mitchell Palmer, who was the attorney general, to become director of the Bureau of Investigation, which is the forerunner of the FBI. Now, the reason Palmer needed somebody big, you know, and, and notable like Flynn was that period, 1919 to 1920. 21, America was experienced probably the worst period of terrorism we ever had. It was basically anarchist, and it was the Italian anarchist, actually led by Luigi Galliani, a militant uh, anarchist, who were setting off bombs and sending package bombs through the mail. Prior to Flynn's appointment, they sent in the end of April, beginning of May 1919, 30 package bombs across the country targeting A. Mitchell Palmer, targeting police chiefs, targeting senators. But what's interesting, about 16 of those packages never got sent because the Gallianis didn't put enough postage on the package bombs. Now, it wasn't because they were cheap. They just didn't realize it weighed that much. And a postal worker (laughs) was the one who saw there was not enough postage on these packages. So he said, okay, let's put them... Uh, in the basement, the Gallianas wrapped them up to look like they were Gimbal department store gifts. Gimbal's was a big department store in that in those days. And so he has these 16 packages. He didn't know there were bombs in there. The Gallianas created masterful bombs in little packages that if you open the cylinder you think is a gift, it would blow up and it would kill you and the person near them. It turns out the packages that did get through, either there was enough postage on them, didn't set off an explosion that injured severely uh, a senator's wife and her maid. So this became a story in the newspaper. So the postal worker is taking the train home one night. He worked the evening shifts and he buys this newspaper. He's reading it and he goes, oh, senator's wife killed by package. Wait a minute. This is not the bond. Is this the packages that I have? So he runs back to the post office and they expect it. Turns out, you know, they were the package bond. So he, oh. you know, he saved lives. So this is big news. Sure. And then two weeks, you know, a month later on June 2nd, the Gallianis set off nine bombs in seven cities within a two-hour period. One of those bombs was right at the Attorney General Palmer's home. The terrorist was able to, there was no security. He was able to walk up the steps of Palmer's home. He tripped, fell, the bomb went off. Now this gave them a lot of evidence, the um, investigators, because they got parts of his head, his hair, fragments. They could try to piece together, try to figure out who this person is. And they saw an Italian-English dictionary, and they saw leaflets similar to other leaflets and propaganda that the Gallianists had done. So Glenn was pretty sure the Gallianists were involved in this. But again, it's trying to find the evidence. Now, here's where Flynn forms the first counterterrorism um, unit investigation in U.S. history in the sense of prior to that, if a bomb went off, the local police would look at it and it would be one thing at a time. You have now, you know, nine bombs, seven cities, additional mm-hmm. package bomb. You have to create sort of a federal investigative uh, force to go after everything. And he would send his people to different places. They'd have to, you know, 
cooperation, cooperation of other agencies. As time went on, it pieced enough together that some people were brought to justice, but many members of the Gallianists just started to flee the country once they saw, you know, maybe the government was hot on their trail. Can I interrupt you real quick? Yeah. Um, so, so what was the goal of these anarchists? What was it that they wanted? Yeah, destruction of all institutions, religious, political. It was pure anarchism. They just believed uh, society would be better with people cooperating. They were against labor unions. They were against anything organized. And the irony is that the Gallianists, who were anti-organizational, were probably the best organized terrorist group we had. So exactly. this, this is this is what they, they were about. And uh, there was a raid of anarchist meeting houses, and there was roundups of thousands of aliens, many who were not involved in radical activity. And mm -hmm. this was called the Palmer Raids. And uh -huh. it was sort of a black mark in U.S. history because it violated civil liberties of many people. There were a number of deportations. But the Palmer Raids were not the brainchild of A. Mitchell Palmer. And they were not the brainchild of Flynn. Now, Flynn supported them, but he didn't organize them. You know who the organizer was? A yes. young individual who was working as chief of the, it was called the General Intelligence Division. It was really the radical division of the Department of Justice. His name was J. Edgar Hoover. I've so heard of him. Hoover, <laughs> so Hoover was really the, the brainchild of this. And years later, long after Flynn died, a journalist said, um, well, you know, you know, Mr. Hoover, how do you feel about being responsible for, you know, the, the Palmer He says, I was not responsible. I was just a, I was just a clerk. It was Flynn's group. Flynn was oh. in charge of it. So he really kind of stuck it to Flynn, who wasn't there to defend himself. So, uh -huh. so you have these raids, and eventually there's a backlash to all that's going on. It ruined A. Mitchell Palmer's career. He was trying to get a nomination for president. Hoover survived. Hoover always survives any mm -hmm. kind of problem. And Flynn, he survived it also. It wasn't that bad in terms of the public image of Flynn. You know, they, even though he supported, he wasn't seen as a, a main architect of it. And he still was popular, you know, with the public. So he kept his job. He wasn't forced out yet. <laughs> he eventually gets forced out in 1921 in the summer. And one of the people who was working against him was another famous person of the time. His name is William J. Burns. You may have heard of the Burns Detective Agency. Yes. So yes. William James Burns and Flynn didn't like each other. And Burns would undermine as a private individual and work in his detective agency, Flynn's investigation of all kinds of terrorism. Now, on September 16, 1920, the worst terrorist act at that time in U.S. history occurred on Wall Street. Oh. A horse-drawn wagon blew up on Wall Street. A bomb was hidden there, killing 38 people and injuring hundreds of others. And the country was just mesmerized with this act of violence. My God, we never heard of something like that. So many people dead. Who, who, who's responsible? Flynn's job as director of the Bureau of Investigation was to find out. And he knew immediately that the Gallianists were involved because, again, Leafless left there was in line with what they had done before, but just doesn't have, you know, the evidence. Not helping him was that the night of the bombing, Wall Street, the J.P. Morgan Bank, which was one of the banks in that area, right across where the bomb went off, they figured, you know, 
terrorism, violence, dead bodies, gory things. That's not good for business. We got to clean this up. We want everybody coming to work the next day. And they had signs, business as usual. So they hired cleaning crews that just swept up all this vital evidence. Uh, imagine that happening today. So Flynn had a tough job and he, he goes in this investigation for over, over a year. You know, nothing really is developing. Galliani had been deported to Italy. And that was a mistake. Because had he been in the U.S., still, maybe they could have got some information from him. Although Galliani probably wouldn't have talked, but maybe they could have intercepted some communication between Galliani and his people. But he was now in Italy. And Flynn sent one of his men over to Italy to try to find Galliani. And they couldn't do that. So to this day, the Wall Street bombing has not been solved. The main wow. suspect, and I believe it's true, is Mario Buda, and he was one of the last remaining Gallianists. And he had the ability, he was the bomb maker, and that almost acting as a lone wolf, he was responsible for this act of, of violence. So Flynn, by the summer of 1921, this new attorney general in power, and he appoints Burns as head of the director of the Bureau of Investigation, forced Flynn out. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's really devastating for Flynn. But Flynn figures, well, you know, I always get calls, so maybe somebody else is going to call me to head up another government agency. Nobody called him, unfortunately, but he's uh, industrious, entrepreneurial, in the sense of not so much making money, but trying to be busy and do things. Sure. He forms his own detective agency. You know, everybody's forming these detective agencies. So his detective agency wasn't that successful. He put one of his sons and one of his daughters sort of in charge of things. And they were alcoholics. They were arrogant. They kind of drove the business down. But one of, one of the clients of Flynn's was this movie company who hired him to spy on one of the most famous silent film actors of the time. And that was Rudolph Valentino. Because oh, they wanted to break a contract that Valentino had, or they think Valentino was breaking the contract. So Flynn's, Flynn's detective agent is flying Valentino. Flynn was also hired to safeguard a racehorse. I mean, here's a guy who was doing all this high-level work. Now, it wasn't an ordinary racehorse. It was a racehorse that won the Kentucky Derby. But still, you know, Flynn didn't think his thing in life was now to go at the movie stars and uh, racehorses. So what he does in 1924... He creates this magazine, a detective magazine called Flynn's. And it's going to publish nonfiction and fiction stories. And it becomes the most popular detective magazine in the country. It lasted beyond his death. It lasted for decades. It changed names or so, but it was the start of it. And he said, what I want to do is also give new writers a chance. We don't care who you are. So one of the people who submitted an article the article they submitted was called Trader's Heart. And Flynn said, okay, let, let's give this young mystery writer who's a woman a chance. Turns out her name was Agatha Christie. Wow. So he gave her some, and the piece she wrote was called Trader's Heart, which Christie later on changed to Witness for the Prosecution, which became a <laughs> famous play and a famous movie. So and Flynn gave Agatha Christie her start. And oh, then, I love that. Yeah, but, you know, it was downhill then from then for Flynn. And uh, in 1928, he died. He was 60 years old. You know, he was a big man. He was 300 pounds. Um, I forgot the, the cause of death. Uh, I think it was a heart attack. 
and the obituaries, you know, came through. One of them talked about how Flynn, you know, made the word Secret Service enshrined in American culture. And so he he was a remarkable man and he and he did so much. And what's amazing is the interviews I've done with Secret Service people, most of them say, you know, we really didn't know much about him, just like I didn't know much about his earlier life. So it's now the book has now generated interest within the Secret Service sure. about uh, perhaps doing something now to honor the memory of Flynn because he basically is a forgotten man in history. And I try to figure out why was he forgotten? Yeah. And it could be that he was overshadowed later on in terms of J. Go Hoover, A. Mitchell Palmer. And so journalists and historians, as years went on, just didn't write much about Flynn. So, I mean, that's the only reason I could come up with. But Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have said about 18 things in this interview that I think you made up, but <laughs> oh, it was time for me to give you the four. Well, I don't know. Is there anything else that you want to add about Flynn that um, you think? No, I, I, I did want to say that the quote I read at the introduction was from a story that Flynn wrote. That was his description of the body in the barrel. He was a great writer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was also involved in Hollywood too. Like he actually wrote some screenplays. You said. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. See, the Eagle's Eye became a serial. And they, at that time, there was an actor called King Baggert, who I'd never heard of, but he was a famous silent film star and he starred in it. And so Flynn, he, he worked with uh, screenwriters, you know, so okay. they, they worked together. Okay. And, um, but he was part of that and he wrote the book about it. And this was a, a big thing in the movie theaters. Yeah. The emotions and all that. But I just, re I just remember this now. When the movie came out, there also was the pandemic, just like we went through COVID. Right. It was this, right. the flu and movie theaters shut down. So eventually the company, the Wharton brothers who financed the uh, movies lost money on, on, on the movie. And those movies probably don't exist anymore, do they? I think we lost yeah. a lot of the silent movies. I, you know, I tried to track it down in the Library of Congress and- mm -hmm. It probably is somewhere. I just, I couldn't find it. And I couldn't, I wanted to hear his voice, you know, sure. Lynn's voice. Even I could find a teeny recording or see something, uh, what he looked like when he walked and when he talked, you know, I, because uh -huh. he came alive to me, you know, all these years of research on him that I did and learning about him that just, what does he sound like, you know? And, yeah. you know, just, yeah. uh, that's so pretty I, I couldn't find that. Yeah. That, that would be fascinating if so maybe yeah. somebody who listens will, have some insight, although you think his family would. He said you contacted his grandson. Yeah, so. yeah, but you never know. Yeah, it's sure it's there. It's Maybe. There yeah. <laughs> All right, well, that is really some story. Um, and it's time for us to play Fact or Fiction. Um, but let's pause for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back. Are you a toffee lover? Do you crave something sweet and delicious that you can indulge in guilt-free? Then you must try Bell Toffee. Bell Toffee is made with only the finest ingredients, including creamery butter, pure cane sugar, and high-quality nuts. It's made in small batches in our kitchen in Lee Summit, Missouri, to ensure the highest level of quality and freshness. And the best part? Bell Toffee comes in a variety of flavors, so there's something for everyone. Milk chocolate almond, bourbon pecan, dark chocolate almond, and roasted hazelnut espresso. There's a flavor for every taste bud. Whether you're looking for a special treat for yourself or a unique gift for a loved one, Bell Toffee has got you covered. And with their easy online ordering and fast shipping, it's never been easier to enjoy delicious toffee whenever you want. 
So head over to belltoffee.com today to place your order and experience the sweet taste of Bell Toffee. Welcome back, listeners. I am here with Dr. Jeffrey D. Simon, the author of The Bulldog Detective, William J. Flynn, and America's First War Against the Mafia, Spies, and Terrorists. And he's just shared an unbelievable but mostly true story about William Flynn. He's agreed to list four details from the story he shared, one of which is a complete fabrication that he inserted into our interview. All right. I think I'm ready. All right. All right. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Number one. I'm going to read this. Flynn and his plainclothes detectives marched down the streets of New York on their way to raid a gambling house, all carrying axes and crowbars in broad daylight, visible to everyone on the crowded streets. Oh, okay. Two, Giuseppe Morello, after being sentenced to a long prison term, turned towards Flynn, who was sitting in the courtroom, glared at him, and threatened to kill him by giving him the death sign a finger across the neck. Okay. Number three, Flynn helped launch the career of mystery writer Agatha Christie. (laughs) At four, Flynn told the Secretary of the Treasury that he would accept the job of Chief of the U.S. Secret Service only if the Secret Service headquarters were moved from Washington, D.C. to New York City. Oh, those are good ones. (laughs) Um, I thought the Valentino thing was made up. But um, that was true, huh? Yeah, the Valentino thing was true. That was true. I, I, was, the one about I thought Christy. that was made oh, up. that was the makeup. No, no, that yeah, was true. No, Valentino just, was true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, okay, so the first one was the men with the axes just marching down the street. Right. Uh, second one was- Morello giving the, the death sign. The death sign. And I think you said that he, they did that anyway, right? Maybe to other people? Oh, to other people, yeah, in the black hand. Yeah, in the black you know, hand. Okay. okay. Uh, and three, then Flynn helped launch the career of mystery writer Agatha Christie. Okay. And four, he told the Secretary of the Treasury, mm. he'll take the job if you move the headquarters from Washington to New York. So, so I think yeah. Agatha Christie, that's just kind of coincidental, but I mean, it could be because I think Witness for the Prosecution was her first play. It was like her first big success, and it was a play, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, it makes sense that he would. Oh, I don't know about the men marching down the street. That's too hard. Um, Okay, I'm going to say that you made up the second one with the hand across the the throat. How'd you get it? How'd you get that one? I thought, no way you would get that. No way. So how did you get that? I don't know. I just, (laughs) I thought, well, it's, okay. The Agatha Christie is true though? The Agatha Christie is true. She was an unknown writer then, and uh, it was early in her career. She was a few years into her career, and witness for the prosecution and Taylor was was much later on. She wrote other things, obviously, also. But yeah, yeah no, he he helped, you know, help give her that start. Like, oh, that's that. amazing! That's yeah. amazing. And then, um, and they really did march down the the street with all those weapons. They marched down with those axes and crowbars. And he and, did, uh, and he did say that you know he'd take the job, but he wanted to stay in New right, York. Right, right, yeah. Now, what happened? You want to know what happened with Morello and Lupo I and the court? I do want to know. I'll yeah, be- and Hazel, I was afraid I was afraid I was going to screw up and actually say what happened, so I had to make a note: don't uh-huh. say the truth on this one. What happened was when Morello heard the sentence, he went into convulsions, he fainted, he cried, and they had to carry him out of the courtroom. Lupo started crying like a baby when he was sentenced. So this tough mafioso 
who kill people, who threaten people, just totally uh, collapse in, yes. in fear and crying. And the newspapers pointed this out and it helped, you know, demystify this image of the tough mafioso, mafioso and all that. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. They would have been a lot better if they'd done the, the, uh, the sign of yeah, us. Yeah. And the, actually, Lupo, I think it was Lupo in prison, they were thinking about a plan, or it could be Morello or Lupo, to kidnap Flynn's children. But they decided we're not going to do that. Oh, good. Okay. But that was, <laughs> that was basically to try to get uh, a pardon for one of them or so. But, uh, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. But it was big news in terms of they, they didn't take it like a man, they're sentencing. You know, they, oh, were, they, they thought they were going to get away with it or be yeah. a short counterfeiting sentence. So, you know, I'm sure the judge did it because of all the other things they did, even though they weren't on trial for murder and right. the barrel murder and everything like that, that you just said, we got counterfeit judge. I'm going to give you, you know, this long prison term, 25, 30 years. Wow. That's crazy. This was so much fun. <laughs> I had a great time and I can't wait to read the book. Oh, oh great. I, yeah, I'm excited. You're Thank such you. a good storyteller. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Great questions also. Thank you. Right. Thank okay, you. it's a great All show. Right. I like it. Bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Fact or Fiction, and a special thanks to author Jeffrey D. Simon for sharing a great story on today's show. I've included links at factorfictionpodcast.com to purchase Bulldog Detective William J. Flynn and America's First War Against the Mafia, Spies, and Terrorists. As always, I'll have relevant images on the webpage, too. I'll be back soon with another episode of Fact or Fiction. Until then, listen carefully because it's tricky to know if something is fact or fiction. Goodbye. Maximum Labs production with music provided by Nick Wiley. We welcome your feedback. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks. Bye.